0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm privileged to share with you today an overview of laws and regulations that can affect us as security leaders. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn, and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. And if you enjoy the show, share with your friends on social media. Well, today we're talking about cybersecurity regulations because, I mean, who doesn't like to be regulated? Well, the truth is ensuring an organization can meet any appropriate laws, regulations, and best practices that pertain to cybersecurity is really a big part of being a good CISO. So on today's show, we're going to give a bit of background on some various regulations and laws that you're most likely to encounter. Now, this is going to sort of sound like alphabet soup. H-I-P-A-A-S-O-X-G-L-B-A-G-D-P-R-C-C-P-A-M-O-U-S-C. But if we look at them one at a time, we can see which ones pertain to us and which ones don't, and as well as see what we need in our enterprise to ensure we're compliant. Let me start out with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, commonly known as HIPAA. Please, two A's, not two P's. It's not a large female aquatic mammal. HIPAA was created back in 1996 under the Clinton administration, to advocate for security and privacy of personal medical information, and it was sort of timely. I remember back in 1992, I ran a the security practice at a company called Computer Task Group. Okay, full disclosure, I was a security practice, but they also had a healthcare practice, and so I got together with the head of healthcare and I said, "Hey, we should go ahead and." Talk to hospitals, talk to medical facilities about putting some security in their computer systems. And we tried that. We talked to a bunch of them, and guess what we sold? Zilch. Nothing. Why? Because they said, hey, there's no law that says we have to do it, so we're not going to do it. Now, fast forward to 1999, three years after HIPAA, working with a different company, team up with a firm down in Atlanta, I don't remember who they were, but we went to a major healthcare exhibit, and we pitch the daylights out of this new business model to say we can do security assessments and help you out in the healthcare. Guess how many we sold? <laughs> Zero. Why? Because they said, hey, no one's gone to jail yet and no one's had a big fine yet. And so therefore we're really just not going to do it until something happens. Well, fast forward now, it's 15 years after HIPAA after HIP has been out and it does pertain and it's going to pertain to organizations that are processing personal or protected health information, or PHI. Now, this is going to include companies such as insurance companies, healthcare companies that may be doing it. Maybe if you're uploading personal information through a data portal or things such as that, pharmacies, etc. But in general, if a company simply is going ahead and capturing information to provide to an insurance company. That is to say, HR captures your name and your your birth date or whatever, and then they outsource things over to a healthcare insurance company. That doesn't necessarily make you uh, required to comply with HIPAA. So take a look carefully. If you're in the healthcare industry, almost definitely it is. But it's still important to understand what's involved because it lays out three different types of security safeguards for compliance. Administrative, physical and technical. So, let's take a look at what an administrative safeguard might be. Administrative safeguards are policies and procedures that show how the entity is going to comply with HIPAA. For example, there are policies and procedures that address access authorization, account termination, training programs, contingency plans, uh, internal audit, uh, responding to security breaches, etc. Without going into too much detail, these administrative controls really focus on five key areas. Having a security management process, okay, designating security personnel, implementing information access management, so you can authorize which users can see the information, providing workforce training and management on these security policies and procedures, and performing a periodic assessment of security. So if you think about it, even beyond the scope of HIPAA, having a security management process, designating your security personnel, having an in- access management plan, workforce training, and periodic assessment, makes really good sense in pretty much any situation. Now, the second one to administrative safeguards is physical safeguards. These are controls that physically protect against inappropriate access. For example, when IT equipment is retired, is it properly disposed of? So... Personal health information is not compromised. I've heard about things such as uh, PCs and being offered up to say, hey, we're selling them off. Even fact, law enforcement has done this in a couple of cases, some scary things many years ago where they did like delete star dot star in the old days. Someone bought a used computer, undeleted the information. There was things like witness protection data and stuff like that. Well, in general, we should have a data destruction policy and follow it. But what's other also interesting is, if you think about it, some types of equipment you might not expect to have a lot of information on it, may still have it. If you're retiring a photocopier, those things have hard drives in them, except they're like the really simple home ones that do like one sheet at a time. How do you think it's able to go ahead and read in 20 different sheets, two-sided, staple it and align it and keep that all in memory? It's not just a giant... Uh, memory capability in these things that has storage capacity. And so as a result, things such as that have to be taken care of to make sure that there's no compromise if they're reused in doctor's offices, for example, and things like that. The screens that are being used to read medical conditions or patient data have to be protected in medical facilities so passers-by and other people can not get a glance at them and take a look at it. One way you can do Physical safeguards, and again, don't just think out of HIPAA, think of this in general, is a privacy filter. You can place on monitors so you can shield viewing angles. And then in addition to administrative and physical safeguards, there's technical safeguards. These control access to our computer systems, enable us to protect communications containing PHI, this personal health information, electronically from being intercepted. Things that would include, such as access control... Making sure that entities implement technical policies and procedures that only allow authorized persons to access Electronic Protected Health Information, or ePHI. Makes sense? How about audit controls? You have to implement hardware, software, and procedural mechanisms to record and examine access and other activities in information systems that are using ePHI. Integrity controls make sure that this information, the EPHI, is not improperly altered or destroyed and confirm with electronic measures that this is the case. Were someone to be able to go ahead and alter medical information and then some doctor rely upon that and prescribe some medication to a patient who's terribly allergic to it, you could imagine. It could have some pretty serious consequences there. And then transmission security. A covered entity must... Implement technical security measures that guard against unauthorized access to ephi. that's being transmitted over electronic network HIPAA gives us that framework for protected health information or personal health information Now Here's a framework a set of laws actually that pertain to public companies and that's Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 or SOX Uh, the SOX came about it's also providing public company accounting reform and investor protection, uh, essentially after things like Enron and WorldCom. The idea, if you remember, with Enron is that that was a company that the price went up and up and up, and then we found out the whole thing was a scam. It went down It took out Arthur Anderson, accounting firm, with it. And they were doing funky things like go out for a three-martini lunch, and then if, instead of expensing it, They'd say, wait a minute, the martini's in you and you're in the company and therefore it's in the company. So we'll capitalize it and the company's now worth more money and all kinds of goofy stuff like that. So essentially, Sarbanes-Oxley created enough teeth in the law so that executives who are being crooked and cheating and cooking the books would end up potentially exchanging their pinstripes for orange and become a long-term guest of the federal government. All right. What are some of the requirements that are established for Sarbanes-Oxley? One, organizations need to perform a cyber risk assessment. Now, if you don't know what your risks are, you're unlikely to go ahead and treat them. So, common frameworks like NIST, ISO, etc., you can establish a cybersecurity risk management plan. And you identify risks, create a risk register, develop a risk treatment plan that establishes how you're going to accept, mitigate, transfer, or go ahead and remove these risks. Another key requirement of Sarbanes-Oxley, or Sox, is the requirement to identify disclosure controls and policies. Now, Here we're talking about ensuring that relevant information about cybersecurity risk and incidents is processed and reported to the appropriate personnel. And we ensure disclosure decisions and certifications are accurate and establish procedures to prohibit corporate insiders from trading on the basis of material non-public information about cybersecurity risks and incidents. Imagine that, that if you happen to know the fact that you're some ransomware or some intrusion or some breach, go out and short the company stock or sell what you hold, that's illegal. That's against the law. You can't do that. That's considered to be material, uh, non-public information. Now, essentially, here we're saying that the CISOs have to provide an attestation to the chief financial officer, there's not been a data breach that caused any material loss to the company. And if there has, then you're required to issue a public disclosure of the SEC reporting. You have to identify risks for the company in the 10K reports, which is filed annually. And typically they'll see a statement written by the legal office that says, we view cyber risk as a key risk, which has the potential to cause material loss to our company. We take important precautions to minimize this risk, but we're vulnerable to attacks from criminal organizations, nation-state actors, and insiders who might do our company harm. Again, the disclaimers that typically go in there. As Warren Buffett, who said, if you really want to know how to read an annual report, start with the footnotes. Because the footnotes have got the smallest font. It's when you have to say something under the law, but you really don't want to call attention to it. And so you kind of bury it down there. So any cyber issues and things like that might end up down at that little tiny font at the bottom. Maybe go look for it. And there's other risks that could be called out in addition to cyber, like financial problems, changing competition, new laws, economic changes, etc., The third requirement for Sarbanes-Oxley compliance is implementing cybersecurity controls using a reliable framework. Now, here we're talking about the NIST cybersecurity framework or ISO 27001 as a baseline for designing cyber Sarbanes-Oxley controls. We have to think about how controls exist, how to communicate if we fail to meet a control, and how to adjust controls based on a changing environment. This is important because... We know that technology changes, such as using the cloud or additional third parties, uh, require different protection mechanisms than just simply using on-premises technology. And last but not least is the requirement to monitor and test the Sarbanes-Oxy controls. We can think about things like a disaster recovery plan. It's, It's great that you have backups of financially significant applications, And you might be able to take a snapshot on a daily or even a weekly basis for these key databases. But if you don't actually test to make sure the backups work, it might be a big waste of time. As a good CISO, you're going to identify and safeguard these things to make sure they're working as desired. So many years ago, wow, this is back in the 1980s, I was working with a guy by the name of Paul Catalano at Dataport. He had set up a company at the sub-sub-basement of the World Trade Center in downtown Manhattan. Over 100 feet below ground level, there were these big cavernous rooms that were set up at the turn of the last century, ostensibly to create a subway line underneath the Hudson River over to New Jersey. And they ran out of money, and they ended up putting up about a 30-foot cement wall, a seawall, and they just abandoned it. Well, Paul comes along 70 years later rents this stuff out for like a dollar a square foot for a 30-year lease because nobody cares about it. it's unused because what would happen then is if you were in midtown or in the financial district or wall street and you want to get your records back in the day of nine track tapes you'd have to put them in a truck and drive them off to iron mountain and if you needed them back in a hurry and it's rush hour well you can imagine rush hour in new york could be a real big delay so he said hey why don't i just put it right here on the island And so what had happened then is companies could go ahead and hire a courier and said, hey, take these tapes down there, just drop them off. I remember riding down that um, escalator, not escalator, I'm sorry, an elevator, (coughs) going way, way down to the World Trade Center. And they had some old air pumps down there that had leather belts. Well, the leather had all worn away. It pretty much deteriorated. But they said they had created a belt. They got one of them fired up and it worked. 70 years later, that equipment still worked. Well, in any case, this. Big room, all these 9 Track tapes, et cetera. The point of the story is this. One of the companies said, Hey, we want to do a test. And so he said, Send us our backup tapes. They did, and they said, These aren't our backup. Well, actually, they look like our backup tapes, but they're erased. Send us another generation. They sent them another generation. Hey, these are erased. What are you doing to our backup tapes? Well, of course, Paul said, we're not doing anything. So they went ahead and they they checked around and they found out there's nothing wrong with their equipment. Everybody else's tapes look fine, but they said, well, your tapes are wrong because all of yours are blank. You must be sending us blank tapes. He says, we don't do that. Well, back and forth and arguing, turned out they got to the bottom of it. And what had happened was the courier, who was supposed to go ahead and take the tapes, hop in a cab, run downtown, pay the cab fare with the money they gave him, decided to, hey, maybe I'll save a little bit of money. I'll pocket the cab fare and take the subway. So this courier, to save a couple bucks to stick in his pocket, would hop on the subway and put these nine-track tapes on the seat next to him while he's riding down. Well, what's underneath the seat in those subway cars? The old ones. Giant electromagnets. The motors that drive it. And they were demagnetizing the tapes. And so what had happened was, had this organization not chosen to do a test on their backups, In the event of a real emergency, this unusual but (laughs) critical condition would have rendered everything unavailable and they would have been in serious, serious trouble. So sometimes the stuff that you think it looks good and everything is good, procedures are going great, check it out anyway, just to make sure. Okay. Another key law is the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, or GLBA for 1999, the Financial Services Modernization Act. And now what this does is GLBA requires financial institutions to protect personally identifiable information, what we call PII, by doing things such as conducting background checks in their employees or requiring employees to sign an acceptable use agreements, user agreements, limiting the private information to a need-to-know basis, and basic stuff like requiring strong passwords and screen locks on computers and device encryption, Periodic security training and policies for remote work security and enforcing security and a number of others. And so Gramm-Leach blindly, to a large extent, is the reason why you get a privacy policy notice from your bank every year. I remember I went to online banking and the only thing I'd ever get each year was this privacy notice because they were supposed to have it. And I think they've subsequently been able to get a little bit of wiggle room on that. Because now what happens is they just send it to you electronically. Click here, you've been notified, here's your privacy rights. But it's important there because when it comes to personal information, financial organizations, as you imagine, potentially have a lot of it, particularly if you've applied for loans. And so therefore, the constraints on that limit what they can do with that information and give you the option to opt in or opt out of certain practices. So when you get a GLBA-compliant privacy notification, the financial institution has to say what information they have, what they use, with whom they use it, and whether or not you can limit that sharing. Now, it doesn't say that they have to make it easy for you to change things. Sometimes you have to write them a letter or you have to go ahead and click, 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 or do a whole bunch of jumping through hoops. But there are requirements that say they have to make that available to you. For those who work in the federal government... You probably heard of FISMA, the Federal Information Security Management Act of 2002. Now, this was modernized in the Obama administration in the 2014 legislation to kind of make what we sort of nicknamed FISMA 2.0, and addresses the security concerns that we're facing now years later. But essentially, FISMA emphasized a risk-based policy for cost-effective security. Now... FISMO, when you think about it, for those who are familiar with how the do, we had things such as the um, risk management framework, and we would then go ahead and if we happened to work there, we would assess it, take a system, identify it, establish controls, select the controls, validate that they're working correctly, and then go ahead to get an authority to operate. So I'd have to go to a designated approval authority and hand the boss and say, ma'am, I need your signature on this to be an ATO authority to operate. And the designated approval authority usually isn't a cybersecurity expert, it's senior executive service said, well, you sure this is correct? Yes. All right, boss, here you go. And then you get it, and then you're good for three years. Initially, it was a three-year period, because we all know that it takes longer than three years for hackers to write the next generation of bad stuff. Well, this has subsequently been moved from a three-year cycle to what we call continuous monitoring, where... We go like a night watchman walking through a building, checking doors all the time. We don't just simply do this as a one-time exercise, but we're able to then make sure that executive agencies do things such as plan for security and ensure appropriate officials are assigned security responsibility. Periodically review the security control in your systems and then authorize these systems, as I said, prior to operations, and then on a periodicity, usually like three years thereafter. With the ATO or authority to operate is a big deal if you don't provide the security protections commensurate with the risk and the magnitude of harm you could end up in a lot of trouble and so therefore to prevent unauthorized access use disclosure disruption modification destruction all the bad things that can happen that FISMA had set the structure for how to go ahead and do that correctly another regulation we're seeing more of are data compliance and privacy laws there's a couple that are probably come to mind. One is the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, for the European Union, and that came online on the 25th of May, 2018. And the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, which came online on the 1st of January 2020, and they put in abeyance any fines on the 1st of July 2020. At least as of a couple months ago, last time I checked, they still had not issued any fines at least from California, but boy, does GDPR like issue fines. with GDPR has a requirement, it emphasizes that organizations must gain consent to collect personal data, and the level of consent is going to vary according to the type of personal data collected. Now, by the way, because it's a GDPR, a regulation, it's binding on the member unions as compared to, for example, a directive, which tells each member of the EU you have to go write your own interpretation of this. So the GDPR, all 99 paragraphs of it, are binding and they pertain primarily to, well, actually they do pertain to residents of the EU, any personally identifiable information or PII that has to do with that. Now, what about Things such as consent—you have to ask for consent. Yes, it also has things like cookies. You have to opt in. You know, this site uses cookies. You have to say yes. It's like come on. It's like saying this site uses electricity. Of course, it uses cookies, but there's a requirement, and so under GDPR, you've got to have a cookie click through on that. In addition, the data minimization part of it says that if you have no legitimate reason to hold on to information, then you don't get to keep it because if you gather personal data for one purpose, but want to use it for another purpose, like profiling your consumers, that could be considered non-compliance because it wasn't the same defined objective. And there's very clear rights to individuals about personal data that's being collected. You have a right to know why their data is being collected, how it's being processed, if the data has been breached, and you also have an opportunity to have, quote unquote, the right to be forgotten. Now, the right to be forgotten doesn't mean, hey, you did a whole bunch of dumb stuff when you were younger and you've got these Facebook pages, here I am, you know, throwing up on a party on a Friday night and then Monday morning in a three-piece suit looking for a job at your company. And I want the right to have all that goofy stuff taken off of the internet. Well, that's, that's now what they're talking about. The right to be forgotten says if I do business with a company it's subject to this law, I do my transaction. I said, you know what? I'm not going to do any more business with you. Nothing personal, but I got what I wanted. I like to exercise my right. Delete what you have on me. All right. They're required to then remove you and your personal identification information from their database. So three months later, you read in the paper, hey, these guys got hacked. You're like, yeah, not too worried about it because if they follow the rules, my data was no longer in there anymore. There is a, an application that came out a couple of years ago. I forget the guy who did it, but it was kind of funny. It was called Ship Your Enemies GDPR. And essentially, there's a compliance requirement that if somebody says, hey, I want to see what you have on me, you have to go ahead and complete all this detailed studies and things like that. Well, the idea is that's expensive and costly. So the idea with a Ship Your Enemies GDPR was... Something where you fill out this form and you send it into somebody you don't like and they are under the law required to respond to it. And I remember a few years ago at a COSAC event when I was speaking there, and so this would have been, what, 2017 probably before it came online, that we were kicking around the idea of how this compliance requirement could actually be weaponized. And somebody actually wrote this kind of fun app, saying that, Hey, every morning, tell all your employees, okay, everybody here, I want you to go ahead and set a GDPR data request to each of our competitors, forcing them to go ahead and churn through all their information and tell you what you know about you. Now, when it came to companies like Facebook or whatever, as soon as GDPR went online, I think some enterprising lawyers probably filed a billion euro lawsuit against Google and one against Facebook saying, we got to find something on these guys somehow. But Facebook... And the organization of that information, as I understood, is not organized by you. There's not some hard drive or some little blade out there in the Facebook server land that has all of your stuff on it. It's not organized that way. And the idea of having to go through and thread through and pull everything out sounds like a nightmare of expense. The other thing, if you want to have a little bit of fun, fire up Google Maps and drop yourself into Street View. And in most cities in the United States, you just drive around, and look at the houses, look at the buildings, if you're out in the rural area, look at the cows. Well, then take that same map, zoom out, come over there and drop yourself in some city in Germany. And then start driving along. And very quickly, if not on the very first view on that street view, you'll see big blotted out areas where you can't see that building. And as you walk down the street with the click, 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 go forward, that blur moves around. Somebody has said, I don't want to have my street view available to the rest of the world. But hey, if you drove down the street, you'd see it. Yeah. And if you look at the satellite view, you see it. Yeah. But you can't see the face view of it. Can you imagine the cost and expense for Google Maps to be able to try to maintain all that stuff? So some places are on the USA update all the time. You get a nice new Google map. But over there... They may take a Google map and say, you know what, we're not going to bait this picture for 30 years because it's just going to be way too expensive to keep it going. So GDPR then has a requirement for consent, consent data minimization, individual rights, and things like that. Well, it wasn't too long before finally GDPR-like regulations made their way to the American shores, but it made it over to the Pacific shore on California. The CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which I mentioned came online in 2020, is similar to GDPR in many ways. It focuses on consumer privacy rights. It regulates the data belonging to individuals, Internet activities, cookies, IP addresses, biometrics, even Internet of Things devices. And similar to GDPR, CCPA identifies consumers that have, the right. Consumers have a right to know what personal data is collected or sold or for what purposes. And if you're a California resident, you can request that your data be deleted and opt out of it ever being collected or sold. Now, that's kind of interesting. I could say I don't want to be part of it. Yeah, I can opt out. The other element in there it says is that if you choose not to accept the data collection, they can't reduce the level of service. They still have to give it to you. I noticed something similar to that when I was in Australia a couple of years ago. I was in Sydney and Picked up a Wi Fi signal, and I don't know, a store, restaurant, whatever it was. And it said, I think it might have been a restaurant. It said, This Wi Fi is offered to you courtesy of such and such, whatever the company name was. And click here if you'd like to opt in for notifications. <clears> hmm, <throat> opt in. Meaning that the default was they didn't get your information. Now there's sort of a social contract. They said, Hey, we're giving you free Wi Fi. How about letting us send you some marketing emails? And what struck me was is that it was very different than in the US, for example, where you opt, you get something, and then unless you can dig through six layers of menus to find the way to opt out, you're going to be in contact with it. And it doesn't it seem that once your email address gets on one mailing list, it gets on a lot of other ones. And so you can start to see why legislators are starting to come up with rules like that. Violations of CCPA can come up to be seventy-five hundred dollars and consumers can sue companies for data breaches. But the nice thing is about the CCPA is it has some reasonable limits. You have to be doing, I think, like $25 million worth of business or get more than half of your revenue from processing personal records and things such as that. There's some some reasonable minimums in there. The thing with the GDPR is because it pertains to EU citizens, they could say, well, we're going to place a fine on an American company that has no presence in the EU, no employees in the EU, but yet some of our EU citizens used your services and they provided your information. And the maximum penalties under GDPR are pretty significant. 4% of global turnover or 20 million euros. Well, global turnover, kind of a not an American term, it's basically your gross revenue. Well, what if you only get 0.1% of your revenue from the EU? Yep, you can look at 4% because, well, it's our laws and you got to pay it. So from European perspective, that makes perfectly good sense. You got to protect our people. From American perspective, it almost sounds like a Monty Python thing that says, I think there should be a tax on all foreigners living abroad. Yeah, we're attacking, taxing and penalizing companies from... You know, other parts of the world. Well, when GDPR first came out, I remember back in May of 2018, there's a couple of clients that said, Can we geo block anybody coming from the EU? They basically put out like a go away sign on their website. Well, it's not that bad. It turns out that it's not onerous if you've been doing reasonable things and following normal practice of privacy and things such as that. You should be okay. The Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, in 1980 published some privacy principles. And that list of privacy principles are pretty much all embedded in the GDPR, which came up, what, 38 years later? And so as a result, there's a lot of consistency there. There's not a big, terrible surprise. Although the one interesting thing, at least for me anyway, is that under the GDPR, they treat IP addresses as PII. Like, it's equipment. IP addresses are leased; they're allocated to you. They change everywhere you go. Nope, it's PII. All righty. So, if someone from the EU connects to you, their IP address is considered PII, and you need to protect it. Now, the PCI DSS, the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. Now, that's not a law, but it's a framework issued by the PCI Security Standards Council to, quote, encourage and enhance the broad adoption of consistent data security measures globally. Now, PCI DSS applies to all entities involved in payment card processing, merchants, processors, acquirers, issuers, service providers, that whole ecosystem. It also applies to other entities that will store or process or transmit cardholder data or sensitive authentication data. Now, the latest version is 3.2.1, came out in May of 2018, That's still current. And it's, again, not one of these documents that have all these onerous requirements. It's kind of straightforward. There's 12 requirements distributed over six different categories. So the category of build and maintain a secure network and systems, the first one, install and maintain a firewall to protect your car holder data. It's like, use a firewall. Really? Yeah. That's not tough. Number two, don't use default passwords that the vendors give you. Yeah, that's pretty easy too. How about stored cardholder data? Protect it and then encrypt it when you transmit it. Yeah, those aren't so bad. How about for a vulnerability management program? Protect all your systems against malware. Regularly update your antivirus programs and maintain secure systems and applications. You see, this is... Not complex. This is Security 101. Implement strong access control measures by restricting access to cardholder data to by business requirement need to know. Identify, authenticate access to the system components and restrict physical access to cardholder data. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. Pardon me. Number 10, because we've already gone through nine of them already, track and monitor all access to network resources and cardholder data and regularly test your security systems and processes. That's where the pen tests come in. And then number 12, maintain a policy that addresses information security for all personnel. Now, I called up uh, that physical access to cardholder data. And uh, a little story, I can leave the names out of it. Well, there was a financial institution that uh, once upon a time they had processed a whole lot of card information, debit cards, and somebody decided that they are going to go ahead and take a whole bunch of these card numbers and use them as test data. Well, a friend of mine happened to be there, and he says, you guys can't do that. And they said, what do you mean you can't do that? It's already in the right format. We know there's nothing wrong with it because it works, and we're using it to test our systems. What better way to test our systems because we remove the chance that our data is bad. If there's a problem, we know it's this test system. He says, you can't do that. Well, they went ahead and did it anyway. You can guess what happened. Because it was test data, it was protected like test data, which means it's not protected. And eventually the whole database got loose. Can you imagine the conversation between a couple hackers or carters or whatever? One of the guys says, hey, dude, what? I just downloaded thousands of card numbers from this bank. And I said, where'd you get it? And they said, ah, it's test data. Yeah, it's garbage. Throw it out. Well, let me try one. No, you're wasting your time. Let me try one anyway. Hey, oh, what? It worked. What? Yeah, it worked. Wait a minute, let me try another one. That that one worked. Dude, they all work. And uh, from what I understand, that bank lost several million dollars that way. And then uh, fudged, Fudge's story on their quarterly report, and kind of wrote all that off to customer acquisition instead of fessing up to what happened. Uh, needless to say, uh, I think that bank is no longer around, at least the people running it are no longer the financial industry because they, they got schwacked pretty bad because they were breaking all the rules. Let me go one more. Uh, The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or or CMMC. Now, don't confuse that with CMMI, which is a Capability Maturity Model Integration, which is a process-level improvement training and appraisal program first developed at Carnegie Mellon. But CMMC is pretty recent. It comes from the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, or if you're into the alphabet soup, the OU. S-D-paren-A-appersand-S. ampersand si mean, I don't think that's pronounceable in our language. But anyway, acquisition sustainment from the Office of Undersecretaries sense. It was developed to help protect the defense industrial base of the DIB. It combines security standards and best practices and map these controls and processes across a number of maturity levels that range from basic cyber hygiene to advanced. Now, the goal here is to be able to come up with some response to the constant breaches that we've seen from defense department contractors being broken into by other nation states, foreign governments and actors acting on their behalf, essentially doing espionage and stealing stuff and stealing billions of dollars of technology and literally changing the balance of power militarily in some areas. Now the goal for CMMC is to be cost effective and affordable for small businesses to implement at lower levels, but I was reading an interesting article earlier today talking about um, first wave of some of the proposals are 150 dollars to $300,000 cost per assessment, even for small companies, less than 50 employees. So I'm going to look some more into this. The five levels of CMMC at level one, the most simple level, there's only 17 controls, By level three, you're at 130 controls, and level five, up to 171 controls. And you're going to be looking at things like NIST Special Publication 853 Rev 5 and the 800 171. A lot of this is to reflect what's called the DFARs, okay, the Financial Acquisition Rules, to ensure that contractors with the Department of Defense comply with these requirements to help reduce the risk. You know, I'm going to do an entire episode on that. All right, so we'll go into more detail in another episode on CMMC because I really think this is going to become a big deal. My personal prediction is it's going to go beyond just Department of Defense. Now, I've been very U.S.-centric in this broadcast, and I realize that because there's privacy laws from other countries, the Personal Information Protection, Electronic Document Act for Canada... Brazilian General Data Protection Act, Australian Data Privacy Regulation. China has theirs. Russia has theirs. uh, South Africa has theirs. There's, There's plenty of them. And as a result, what we find then is that you need to know the jurisdiction in which you're going to operate. In the U.S., we're kind of trending toward a balkanization of our rule set. Very much like Senate Bill or Assembly Bill 1386 in California created some of the first breach notification laws. And then other states were free to copy it and eventually took a long time, but everybody else got their own rule. But they're all different to a certain extent as compared to federal government saying, boom, here's our standard. Well, what we have now is three different privacy rules. California coming out with the first one. And the same thing, Congress is not taking a leadership role on this. And so we're going to end up with a whole patchwork quilt of different rules and regulations again. It'd be nice if we could get all the states and territories together to agree on something like the uniform commercial code as it pertains to cyber. But I'm thinking that's a dream that I'm probably not going to see happen, come through anytime soon. Well, Hopefully you've gotten in some little insight kind of walking around the block there with some of these rules and laws and regulations. And although it's sort of an alphabet soup, by now you should at least be familiar with what they are and what they mean. And if you hear something, for example, it's kind of a quick uh, review over again, just walking through. We talked about HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, healthcare information, Sarbanes-Oxley. SOX being able to specify requirements for publicly traded companies. GLBA or Graham Leach-Bliley pertains to the financial industry with respect to how they control and release and share private information. FISMA, Federal Information Security Management Act, pertains to the federal government and has to do with how your systems are set up and reviewed and authenticated for security and authorized. The General Data Protection Regulation complies or with the European Union requirements that protect data, and we have a U.S. equivalent or similar one, the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA. PCI DSS is the framework with regard to payment cards, credit cards, debit cards, etc., and 12 different rules for there, and then the CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification for Department of Defense Contractors, at least that's what it's limited to for now, that provides some requirements to protect that information. Oh, wow. So hopefully you found that helpful. Uh, at the end of the day, when there's these regulations that are out there, you have a requirement to comply with them. Don't recommend you play fast and loose with it. It's just just not really worth it because organizations may face fines and penalties that might eclipse other types of risks that you could have. Otherwise, it's a genuine risk that you have to factor into. And so if you're in an organization and there's some pushback on your cyber program, you can turn to one of these frameworks and use that as an emphasis to be able to convince management that these investments are a way to reduce your risk the financial risk, the regulatory risk, and even potentially the legal risk if someone wants to sue you for failure to comply. You want your organization to lower your risk and be compliant with these laws and regulations and best practice. Well, thank you very much for your time and attention. Again, as I said, this is G. Mark Hardy, and it's been my privilege to share with you the CISO Tradecraft broadcast. Please consider following us. You go to CISOTradecraft.com. or on LinkedIn. You can follow us there and take a look at our show. And we will have another show for you next week. So until then, stay safe.